as we were singing, point of personal privilege, I saw Stuart Morris, who is now a hundred and what, Stuart? How many? 102, who served the U.S. Navy, and he was leading all the singing right where he's seated. Today, my subject has to do with the critical race theory that you find in the woke world in which we live. This week, Dr. Ben Carson, most of you know who he is, probably one of the greatest neurosurgeons who's ever lived, a candidate for president, served in the cabinet, director of HUD. He was on campus because he is writing and presenting with his group a curriculum for schools that will deal with patriotism and with faith. So he was here with our head of school and others as we look at that. In the process, Dr. Carson has been a longtime personal friend of mine. He and his wife, Candy. I've been in their home, they've been in my home, so that's a prized relationship. So I knew in one of his books he had written about the critical race theory. So I brought Dr. Carson, his wife here, and we got stood together and before camera, I interviewed him and I asked him to say in understandable terms what the average person would get and understand about the critical race theory. So here is that brief interview with Dr. Carson. So Dr. Carson, give us a workable, uh, homespun definition of the critical race theory so everybody understand it. Well, we talk about this uh, quite a bit in our book, Created Equal. Um, it, It stems from critical legal theory. And critical legal theory says that our whole legal system was set up to preserve uh, white superiority, mm-hmm. right, white supremacy. And critical race theory is then becomes a subset of that. And it's meant to make sure that the racial hierarchy is maintained with whites on top. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really talks about some of the pretty awful things that happened in our country. You can't mm. deny that there were some terrible things that Absolutely. happened. Absolutely. Uh, but it then utilizes that to try to create a platform to build upon. Now, you know, we have a choice as a nation. Do we want to build upon our greatest mistakes? Mm. Or do we want to build on the tremendous successes that we've had? Mm. Because the two lead to very different places. Mm. And, you know, critical race theory would have our children uh, in dividing themselves, Mm. you know, making white kids feel guilty because they're oppressors and all of their relatives are oppressors, making black kids and minorities feel like they're victims. Mm. Mm. And, uh, you know, 
it's probably the worst thing you can do to a person is to make them think they're a victim. Because if you think you are a victim, you are one. Mm. <laughs> That's exactly right. And that is really uh, hurting a lot of the progress that has been made. I mean, in, in my lifetime, the, the country has changed dramatically. I mean, mm. dramatically. Uh, I remember as a six-year-old going to Chattanooga, Tennessee, oh. and seeing the whites and colored signs mm. and... And I remember the adults saying, make sure you observe those. Mm. Uh, you don't have to do that when you get back to Detroit. But Detroit was a whole another different type of racism. Mm. Mm. Um, but that was as a kid. And also when I was a kid, when a black person came on television in a non-servile role, it was a big deal. Mm. You called mm. everybody into the living room. Hey, look at this. I mm. mean, this was incredible. Mm. Now, look at today. Mm. Black generals and admirals and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies and heads of foundations, Ivy League presidents, uh, president of the United States mm. two times, mm. a vice president. I mean, the list goes on and on. That's in one lifetime. Mm. So mm. to say that we have a, a, a system that doesn't respond and doesn't change is totally inaccurate. And if we were a horrible, systemically racist place, why would people be trying to form caravans to get in here? And when they got here, wouldn't they call all their relatives and friends and say, don't come here, this is the worst place? No, that's not what's happening, is it? <laughs> but tragically, what we see today through these years is not the whole story of America and the African-Americans that we brought over here as slaves. I watched a little bit of the Alabama-Texas game. I will not mention that I went to the University of Alabama. I've kept that quiet. But yesterday, by the way, most of you know I love history. I majored in history in college. I, my particular love was American history. But yesterday I went back and I looked at 400 years of life in America for the African-American who was brought over here as slaves. I, you know, I sort of knew all that, but I didn't have any concept of the length of the bigotry, the prejudice, the inhumane way Americans treated fellow human beings made in the image of God it's called chattel slavery as if they were animals and not human beings. So we have to remember the length of all that. I put sort of a little scale up here a little bit so you can see some of this. The Declaration of Independence, 1776. Emancipation Proclamation, 1863, when President Lincoln, by executive order, right in the 
the middle of the Civil War, and the Civil War, you say, it was about states' rights. Yes, that was a little bit, but the major emphasis of the Civil War, I am convinced, was over slavery, the legitimacy of slavery. Because if you know your history, uh, slaves first came over here in, in 1619, and I do not buy the 1619 phony history. That's not what I'm saying. But they came with the settlement of Jamestown, the Massachusetts Bay Company, and they came primarily for, for profit and for gold. A little later, we know about Plymouth Rock, when pilgrims came because they loved Jesus and they wanted to worship freely and independently in a new land. So a totally different ball game. But in Jamestown, the secular invasion of our country, they brought with them slaves, first slavery in our history. And then we know from that moment, listen, roughly 250 years, just hold on to that number, 250 years we treated fellow human beings made in the image of God as if they were animals and sometimes worse than we treat our own animals. That's the truth. And I realized the length of that and the shame of that and the evil of that. And then we go down the timeline, Emancipation Proclamation, the Civil Rights Act passed by Congress in 1964, and there's been all the way through this uh, something like 400 years. Dr. Martin Luther King began his public ministry in 1955, a graduate of Morehouse College. He'd earned his PhD there in Boston. And then we know he begins his public ministry after prayer knowing that the only way for his people to be a part of the American dream. The Constitution was written by wealthy men, intelligent men, supposedly God-fearing men, but eight out of the first 12 presidents of the United States were slave owners. They were slave owners. Now, you can be, build all kind of little anonymous, how people treat their slaves like family and all that, but it is, it is brutality and is evil any way you look at it. And now we see Dr. King came, and through prayer, he decided to bring about a revolution different from any other revolutions, except maybe when Mahatma Gandhi, through pacifism, liberated India from the British Empire through nonviolence. Dr. King took that path. It was dangerous, it was deadly, and he began through those years to do things, to say things, always in a biblical Christian context. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. Don't miss that. And then we know the development there. He gives his famous I Have a Dream speech, 1963. The Civil Rights Act passed by Congress. And now we have, what, 300 years, 350 years, 
gone through this process where there was division, there was racism, not systemic racism, that was the heart. It was an ignorant, godless, evil racism. My complete opinion. And then when this was act from 1964 to 1968, that's when Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. I submit to you that along with Billy Graham and maybe internationally Winston Churchill, Dr. Martin Luther King was the most influential individual in the 20th century by far. He saved America. He, he preached the gospel. He was indeed a great man. Martin Luther King speaking at Southern Methodist University two years before his assassination, 1966. He said, a doctrine of black supremacy is just as dangerous as a doctrine of white supremacy. God is not interested in freedom of black men or brown men or yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race, the creation of a society where every man will respect the dignity and worth of personality. Dr. King, a couple of years before his assassination at SMU. So I submit to you that we're proud to be American. I'm proud to be American, but we can't overlook this disastrous history. At the same time, I want you to look at where we're going today with this outline. This is the history of wokeness. The church is to understand they are white supremacists by nature. White Christians are called to repent of their whiteness and respect their inherent white frigidity. Fragility, that means our defensive, our defensive reaction that we're white and we're not prejudiced. White Christians are told that they're guilty in the racist sins of their forefathers. Christians are urged to read complex realities and events through the lens of racism. For example, poverty, crime rate, shootings, educational disparity, the woke people would say it's all racism. Christians are told to see capitalism as oppressive, unfair and unjust. Various kinds of socialism is the preferred system. Christians are directed to add their voice to def defund the police. Now, this is the doctrine of wokeism. I want you to see the outline of where we're going today, the total outline. Number one, Woke history is defined by the color of your face. All important, the color of your face, says all of those in the woke agenda. What does that mean? That means according to the low, those in the left, left part of our United States, that if you were born black or some other color, that defines who you are, and you are, listen to me carefully, automatically a racist by being white. It doesn't matter what you've done, what you believe, where you've been, you are a racist by virtue of your birth, and more than that, and this is hard to believe, there's not a thing in the world you can ever do to repent 
and to convince anybody anywhere because you're white that you're not a racist. There's no redemption. You could be anti-racist, but you'll never reach the goal until you're still categorized like that. A leader of Black Lives Matter said, a matter of public record, anyone who waves an American flag by definition, whomever you are, you're a racist. Everything is tragically defined by racism. This is the woke history is defined by the color of your face. How different that is from Dr. Martin Luther King's understanding of the racial challenges we had in America then, and we progressed a great deal, as Dr. Carson has said, but we still have some ways to go, but how far that we have come. You see, he would tell us, as we know, the color of your face doesn't determine your character and who you are, and really, you'll discover, doesn't say much about you and me. Did you know that all of our physical assets, ears, nose, mouth, body, make up 0.012 of who we are? Is that any big deal about you or about me? That Color is all important of your skin. Uh, go to Korea, fly over Korea, and I am told that you see North Korea is totally dark at night. Go at night, it's almost totally dark, almost no light at all of North Korea. Go to South Korea, and there's lights everywhere. In South Korea, it's progressive, they're fluent, there's freedom, and arguably the most Christian nation on the earth. Go to North Korea, what did you find? The very opposite. You find the, the dictatorial leadership of a godless family. You find right is determined by might. You define a military enemy when people are starving. Education is practically non-existent and they live almost as slaves in North Korea. You say, well, the difference is the color of their skin, the melanin. Well, you go to Korea and you see a North Korean, my goodness, the color of their skin and their eyes look so much like a South Korean, have you noticed? But one country is in darkness in every way, the other country is in light in every way, the difference is not the color of their skin. The difference is the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Woke history would have everything defined by the color of your face. Human history is defined by grace. The name Martin Luther King Jr. Who was Martin Luther? Martin Luther was a revolutionary who said, we're not saved by good works and I'm better than you and I do more than you and God's gonna rank us up there. He said from the passage of Ephesians 3 and many other places, your salvation and my salvation is based on grace by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the gospel that Dr. King preached throughout his life. He said in a sermon shortly before he died 
that he hoped that people would know one thing about him. He genuinely loved everybody. What a different thing. No salvation, you're born white. Dr. King said so eloquently at SMU what the Bible says about all of these factors. Saved by grace. And then the last point. God's history is defined by the absence of race. Have you ever heard anything like that in your life? Let me tell you something. Follow me carefully. You want to read more about this? Read uh, Ken Ham's book. He's developed it beautifully, beautifully in a biblical framework. There's only one race, ladies and gentlemen. In the beginning, God created man and woman. By the way, there's only two genders. This is a side note. God created man and woman in his image. We are all heirs and part of the family of God. And a little more melanin in your face or a little less melanin in somebody else's face. We're all part of one human race, and that's the only race that we have. Race is a construct of humanity. It is sinful by nature. You won't find anything in the Bible that has to do separating people by the color of their skin. You can't find it. Ethnicity, background, heritage, family, it's not there. And when I sat here with Dr. and Mrs. Carson, I said, I said, Dr. Carson, what if we all had the same amount of melanin in our skin? He said, life would be boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> We're one race, folks. Color makes no difference to God, and more and more, it should make zero difference to anybody who follows the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you something. You think, well, that's just that man's opinion. Let me get a higher opinion we find here in God's Word. Galatians chapter number 3, and there are many passages along this line. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed themselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and there are heirs according to the promise of the Old and the New Testament. In the church, I've talked to people who are in the whole woke agenda, and they talk about well, this is that division, this is that division, this is that division, we have this, and there's no forgiveness because you happen to be white. And I said, in the body of Christ, there is no respecter of persons if we're all in Christ. The color of your skin doesn't mean zip. Understand that, it is biblical truth. Therefore, we don't play all of these games that everybody would have us play say we're one in Christ, and I don't even believe race is a reality. It's a matter of the melanin in your face. Now, what do we do at this moment in history? We've had 400 years 
the first slaves came. The last, as Dr. Carson said, and I believe the last 10 years at least, it's hard to put a timeline here, America has come a long, long way. We're not there. I think the white supremacists and those KKK, ignorant, godless, evil individuals are just about out of business. Thank God for that. That's the genius of America. Because I think 90% of our nation, I don't know exactly, you could debate that, understands that God is no respecter of persons. And more and more there has been progress and progress in all of these areas and his beautiful deserve. And I attribute that to a lot of factors. Dr. King said when he was touring America, he would go to cities and he'd see churches with steeples up. And he said, in light of the suffering, the Jim Crow laws push back on voting, the suffering his people were still going through there in the 60s, he said, I wonder what kind of pastor that is and what kind of worshipers of God you find there. When they allow people made in the image of God still to be put down, crushed out, questioned, oh yeah, there's an American dream in our Declaration of Independence, in our Constitution, in our bylaws, but that American dream was not written for the African American who was here as a slave. Oh no. But Dr. King, he did not want to destroy America. You know what he said? He said, all I want we as Americans to do is to live up to the high calling and the principles of our basic documents, even though our forefathers who had written them did not live up to them themselves. Did you get it? Very, very important. So Dr. King was a revolutionary, godly individual. He spoke truth into power, no respecter of persons, not perfect, but my goodness, what a brilliant, gifted person he was. When he died, I preached his sermon to Western North Carolina through radio. There in a church that I pastored that was basically not very receptive to African-Americans way up there in the mountains of North Carolina. When I went to be pastor of the First Baptist Church of Columbia, South Carolina, where I was before I came here, I didn't preach a trial sermon. Traditionally, a prospective candidate stand up and preach a sermon. Everybody's got one or two good sermons. And they said, oh, we want him to be our pastor, but I don't do that. They asked me to preach, and I quoted John 3.16 and walked out just like I did here. I said, if they don't get that, they will not get me. That's all I did. I did that in Columbia. But the first deacons meeting I went to in the church where the secession convention was held. Oh, yeah. This is where the South Secession Union, right in that building, right where I preached, had the slave bikers around it. And when I went there, they had boarded the front doors of the church because they would not let someone who didn't have the right color of skin into the church premises. Yes, right downtown Columbia. 
We had two African-American colleges there and some were trying to get in. Before I got there, they didn't let them in. And the rumor was, after they'd been without a pastor a couple of years, said, who are they looking for to preach there? They said, they're looking for a 28-year-old retired Confederate general. <laughs> but my first deacon meeting, never having preached, just having been voted, they sat down at a table like this, about 25 men. One of the deacons was the governor of the state of South Carolina at that moment. So we got in there and they said, here's our new pastor, Ed Young. And so I was seated there. I said, gentlemen, let me communicate to you as clearly as I can who I am. And I told them as pastor of this church, if you retain me as pastor, I'd just been voted in the Sunday before. This church will be no respecter of persons and we'll take anybody, any background, any color of skin into the family of God through Jesus Christ, and there'll be no limitation to that. We're going to do away those doors. They had the front doors boarded up where you had to go in the side doors. That was what it was. And I said, I want to know where you spiritual leaders are on this. We're going to pray. Put your head down on the table. Everybody pray. Your position. I prayed. I said, now I want to know where you stand, gentlemen, if I'm going to be your pastor. If you believe what I believe, that God is no respecter of persons, and we're going to welcome and rejoice with anybody who comes and worships in this house of God, if you follow me with that or you want to keep your bigotry and your prejudice that this church has been known for, and I'll let them vote. I would say 65% voted with me. A handful did not vote, and the others voted to keep the church closed. Among those who did not vote was the governor of the state. Ah. <laughs> uh -huh. Two years later, after he'd been under some gospel preaching, He made the nominating speech in the Democratic Convention for John F. Kennedy. <laughs> so God opened up some eyes, I hope. And when I left, they appointed a committee to find a successor. And on that committee was an African-American man. I was speaking in Richmond, Virginia at a revival, had a wonderful musician, a singer flew with me, and we were staying in a hotel there in downtown Richmond. And every night I would go through there and we'd go through the lobby and, and I discovered that Mrs. King was there at the same time. And this musician knew her and knew Martin Luther friendly as friends through the years. And so I, I met her and we had a chance to visit there in the lobby for several nights. Let me tell you something. She was as fine and as brilliant, I would say, or more so even than her husband. She was a delightful lady. So I have sort of an ongoing relationship 
with admiration for what that Christian man did because what Martin Luther King advocated in bringing harmony and reconciliation to all people is the total opposite of what the woke people are seeking to do for all people. It's diamond. One is godly and one is ungodly. One is biblical and one is not biblical. Let me assure you of that because without grace, we're totally out of business. So with that being said, I'm going to do something with great reticence, but I think it needs to be restated. One of the greatest orations Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, two or three others, would be Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech. There in the Washington Mall, maybe a million people present, millions of people heard it around the world. And Martin Luther King dreamed of a certain kind of America. I think we were getting there with, not fast enough, 350 years of bigotry, by leadership across the board is too much, folks. We can't deny that. We can't run from that. But we were getting there. And we're getting there because a lot of churches, Christians, that's how slavery got eliminated. In England, it was Wilberforce. And here, it was Uncle Tom's cabin. And here, it was... Henry Ward Beecher, and others who stood against the evil and deadliness of racism. Oh, yes, it was through the church when people awakened to see that in the Bible we are one in Jesus Christ, period, Selah, when they began to preach that and see that, that's where racism was eliminated and still being healed. Did you know in, I held in my hand a Bible an old Bible, they have several of them, that were given to the slaves by the plantation owners. Yeah, uh, a slave Bible. The plantation owner had a Bible, and guess they left out one book, Exodus. <laughs> they didn't put Exodus in. But thank God, there's only one kind of slave we want to be. And that's a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ where everybody is welcome. With great reticence, I want to be bold enough to read and remind us of what Dr. King did on that historic day He said, I have a dream that one day every valley will be exalted. Every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain. The crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. He said, this is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, said Dr. King, 
we'll be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we'll be free one day. This will be the day when all God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, my country tis of thee, sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrimage pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And he continued, and he said, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring. From the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania, let freedom ring. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain, Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mohill of Mississippi. And from every mountaintop, let freedom ring. And he said, and when this happens, when we allow freedom to ring, when it rings from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men and Jews and Gentiles and Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and we'll sing the words of that old spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we're free at last.